As we prepare together to hear God's word this morning, I ask you to open your Bibles, if you have them with me, to 1 Samuel chapter 24. We will, by God's grace, be attempting to look at two entire chapters this morning, both chapter 24 and chapter 26. To set the stage and prepare our hearts and minds, let me read for us chapter 24 out of 1 Samuel, then we will pray and begin to consider God's word this morning. Listen as I read God's word. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And there Saul took 3,000 chosen men of all Israel, and he went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfold by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost part of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day that the Lord, of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hands, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe, and afterwards David's heart struck him. Because, and he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. And afterward, David also rose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you into my hands in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord's anointed, for he is, my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did... Uh, no wrong or treason in my hands, or and did not kill you, you know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. And may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept and said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hand. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. Now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom is of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul, and Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. Let's pray. Lord, as we now take um, time in the service to open up your word, and God, as we consider these chapters, chapter 24 and chapter 26, these two occasions where in your own purposes you provided opportunity for David to take the life of his nemesis and his enemy Saul, and yet you moved him to spare this man. 
Lord, I pray that as we consider a few thoughts from these passages, that you would take these, these words, that you would take these truths, and that you would bring them with powerful effect to our own hearts and our own minds and our own lives this day. Lord, we thank you that your word is a true and it is a living word. We ask that it would come with great clarity and power to us in these moments. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, having read only chapter 4 and not yet chapter 26, I can tell you this much. They are very similar accounts. On both of these occasions, the opportunities presented themselves where David had the absolute and easy mode of attack. He could have brought King Saul to an end right in that moment. It was a simple thing for him to do that. Now, really, when we look at this, we can also see in the context of it, it ends up to a degree being a beautiful Father's Day passage. As he says in verse 11, See my father. See the corner of your robe that is in my hand. The fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. And that is a wonderful Father's Day gift. He did not kill him. And then on down later, he will re reply to him and call him his son, who he has been attempting to kill. So there is definitely some unpleasantries in this father-son relationship. Now, it, it, this relationship, there was like a father-son in terms of the closeness, even that he was the best friend with his son. He is literally the son-in-law now at this time. But as we look at the particularities of these stories, there, there are some differences, and let me lay those differences out between chapter 24 and chapter 26 before we get into to the main ideas. In chapter 24, these are both instances where David spares him. In chapter 24, it is in the context of a cave. Now again, you have the stories of, of the locations of En Gedi, you have the wild goats' rock, and you have the cave, and all in, in those things, again, when you think of wild goats' rocks, the reason th they would generally be called that is because they're not for you and me. They're not easily passable. You go on the trails that go around the front of and, and along the side of, the only one who actually traverses those rocks are those animals who are so uniquely designed by God to be able to escape their predators into those high places. But it shows you that they're in rocky terrain with these precipices, with these unreachable areas. And in the context of this terrain, there's a cave there. In the first instance, as the cave is there, and as they're aware that... Saul and 3,000 men are closing on them. They go into and hide in the inner recesses of a cave, which would be no small cave for sure. And it tells us uh, euphemistically, which we will not get into excessive detail, that uh, King Saul determined it was necessary for him to go and relieve himself. And so he went in this cave so that he was in, in the privacy of a personal bathroom, so to speak, and he could uh, relieve himself. Now, in that condition and in those circumstances, he would be exceedingly vulnerable. He would not be prepared, and, and some of it is confusing. Some, of it, some think that Saul may have been sleeping at this time, but that's not the sense of it. The likelihood is in, in one portion of the cave as he enters the specific um, corner where he's headed to, he would remove his outer robe and leave that there, and he would come and regather that on the way back. And so as that robe is there and he, as he is in a position of vulnerability, David is able to come in and rather than just coming into where he's at, he comes to where the robe is and he stops there and he cuts off a portion of that robe and he backs away. But here was this man unprotected. Here was David with all of his men together with him. It was an easy moment of finishing. And all he did in that moment was take a token that he would be able to show to Saul, 
I could have killed you easily had I desired to. That's chapter 24 as the story unfolds. Now, chapter 26, it unfolds differently. Now, I, I'm personally a little disappointed uh, to a degree that chapter 26 even had to be written. It would, you would have thought at the end of chapter 24, my father, my son, you know, that there, there would be, the, you know, a slow run towards each other, uh, an embrace, a reconciliation. They would go home together side by side. He'd be reconciled with his wife. He'd be playing music again in the context of the palace. All you would think ought be fine, but it wasn't. It ends by saying Saul went back and David went back to the stronghold. I cannot assess any more than that's what happened. I don't know if there was still a lack of trust in David. Well, let me see that all is well. Or whatever the details are, it did not bring about a full reconciliation such that by chapter 26, Saul is on the hunt to kill him again. My son, I love you. Why would I have ever thought that you wanted to do that to me? Uh, you know, you are more righteous than I. You are so good. You could have killed me and you didn't. I now trust you. And a period of time passage, don't know how long. All the good is forgotten. All of the fears and the anxieties and the accusations and the negative senses are welled up again. And in chapter 26, there he is again attacking him. This time there is no cave. This time they are simply out in the wilderness. And it is time for the 3,000 men with him, including Abner, his general, to take a nap to sleep for the night. As they lay down to sleep, the scripture tells us that the Lord put them into a deep sleep. David and one of his men approached the camp stealthily in silence in the center of the camp with the, the super guard general right next to him. They just walk right past every single one, walk right up to where Saul is laying, Right next to Saul, pinned in the ground, is Saul's own spear. The man who's with David said, I got this right now. Uh, it will not take me two times. I, I, will, I will pin him down and finish him in one. It's simply this. Boom, boom, and we're done with this forever. I mean, ten seconds and this long-standing problem and fling is finished, and you will now have the kingship right ahead of you. I mean, that's how close he was. And David didn't do it. Now, some of you may scold David. Shame on you, David. Because you don't do it now, what do you end up doing? For the rest of 1 Samuel and the beginning part of 2 Samuel, still a man on the run, a man without a home, in discomfort and difficulty. You could have fixed everything for yourself. You could have made everything better in a moment. You could have had that guy do it and then blamed him and claimed innocence for yourself. I mean, uh, well, he did it, you know. In second, at least I didn't do it with my own hands. But no, he took the spear and he took his special water bottle and took off with those things stood across a little chasm from them and woke him up once again hey there look what i've got now here really he's addressing in chapter 26 he's addressing abner rather than saul directly abner being the, the general and bodyguard abner what happened if i was you i wouldn't even go on living because I, I didn't protect the man that I'm supposed to protect. Look what we did. We walked right in under your noses, and we could have brought this all to an end, but we didn't. And so it again became evidence. Here was a second sparing in these two sparings. David could have on both occasions, either personally or simply through instructing others or really in the cave and at this point probably wouldn't have had to instruct anybody 
could have just kept his mouth shut and those men who were with him would have finished the deed because that was what was in their heart and mind. But each time David stopped it, he protected the man who had been a constant problem to him. He, he kept alive the man whose goal was to kill him. These are the stories particulars. Now moving on from the stories particulars, I want to uh, begin to address a few thoughts as we look at this passage. From the stories particulars, I want us to also see this. The sovereign profound providence. The idea of providence, we, 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 we deal with the idea of sovereignty and that is the notion that uh, the truth that God is always at all times and in all places absolutely in total control. Now I used a, lo a lot of words there that were absolute in total, a, a lot of strong words uh, intentionally. We use those words more commonly, and so we weaken the sense of those terms, you know? Brothers and sisters or, or family members might say to one another in moments of frustration, you always say that. You never listen to me. And I ask the question, never? I mean, th th there's no point at which the person has listened? Always, every single time, the reaction has been exactly like that? Every, well, no. Probably if you really dial it back, actually, they would admit, well, they listen most of the time, but not enough. Well, how did most become never? And how did occasionally reacting wrongly become the always? All right. Those are wrong uses of those words. I'm using those words in their full import. God absolutely, totally, always, thoroughly, comprehensively, completely is in total control. There is nothing, no detail, no aspect, no supposed accident, nothing that is outside of his control. And, the, and that sovereignty with regard to all that ever has happened, is happening, or will happen, we refer to it as his providence is our particular experience of his sovereignty having happened in time. When his sovereignty has been exercised and things have happened, we then say, well, that's God's providence. God brought this about. So providence is merely what? The expression or the occurrence of God's sovereign will in time. In other words, what's going to happen next week? What's going to happen when voting rolls around? What's going to happen? The, the things in the future they will be under God's sovereignty, but they are not yet known as providence until they have happened. Okay? Now, th this is very important. We have, we have trouble looking forward and predicting what God is going to do or allow. I want to put this out here today. We have problems even looking now and backwards at accurately understanding God's full purposes in his providence. Okay? And so, but I want us to see even in this, here, here's the idea, uh, and I love that, that it's laced into the language here. We need to get it more and more back into our language. Paul was trying to do that. James was trying to do that. We'll go to this city and that city. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this and that. I will come to you again if the Lord wills. That sense of everything being dependent on God, oh, we need that. Here in chapter 24, verse 4, 
The men of David say to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand. Verse 10 says, Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you into my hand. Even Saul himself, in verse 18 of 24, said, You declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hand. The phrase you should be hearing over and over again is what? When the Lord put me into your hand. It's not considered accidental. It's not even considered merely an error of judgment, though some might say, I made the mistake of isolating myself from all of my soldiers and all of my protectors and went into the inner parts of a cave without thoroughly checking it out. I mean, how hard would it have been to said, 10 of you, go search out the cave. Clear it and make sure it's clean and safe. Make sure there's no weird animals in there. Make sure there's nothing. Then come out and then I'll go in. He did not do that. See, but he, in the end, he's not assessing that what happened was bad judgment or bad error. Now, I'm not denying bad judgment happens. We're all guilty of bad judgment. We're all guilty of error. But when all is said and done, when it's already done after the fact, we bear the responsibility for our bad judgment and for our bad error, but even those bad judgments and bad errors are part of God's providential purposes. And he went in there. Now, I'll say this. Because this is a little bit of a confusing situation, and some actually say, I don't, it makes no sense to me why he would just go in a cave. He knows that David and his people are around there somewhere. They try to figure out which way did they go, which way did they go. And then all of the sudden, well, here's a cave. Probably not in here. Well, why would that be the assumption? And, and why would it go like that? Uh, well, so a Jewish tradition sprung up. And I'm telling you this just because it's simply a tradition. There's no biblical basis for it, but as the teachers or the, the rab rabbinical tradition, as they would speak about it, they're like, it makes no sense that he would go in this cave without checking it out unprotected. So what happened is after David and his men went in to hide, God sent a spider. Spider built this big spider web. And so by the time David, uh, when Saul came up to the cave, he didn't think to have to check it out because there's a spider web all over the cave. You know? And, you know, and the spider web told him, well, there's nobody's passed through this way. Maybe it spelled out some cave, you know. <laughs> I have no idea. But all of that is just opinions and traditions. The fact is this. It, it could be error. It could be ignorance. I could come up with another explanation. There was no time to search out the cave. He was experiencing a sense of momentary urgency. That happens too. And so I don't know the details and neither do they. The fact is this, he went in there. He put himself in that peculiar situation. But whatever happens, the Lord allowed it to happen. Now I want to tell you this, it's more, very important. When you and I make a mistake, the answer is not to look at somebody else when they, when they say, you blew it, you should have done this and say, Lord let it happen. That ain't on me. That ain't on, you know. It was the will of the Lord. You are responsible for what you do. There are consequences for what you do. Yes, the Lord allowed you to make that bad decision. And the Lord is also going to allow you to face the consequences of that bad decision. Just because God is in absolute control doesn't mean that the responsibility or consequences fall on him. That is a very superficial way of understanding it, which doesn't work. Now, the same thing happened in the, in the wilderness as they lay sleeping. It, it, it tells us in verse 8 of chapter 26, Abishai said to David, God has given our enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear. I will not strike him twice. 
In verse 12, it tells us how this happened. He took all these things away, and not a man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because of a deep sleep from the Lord that had fallen on them. Okay, so in all of their coming and going into the camp and sneaking out of the camp, not a single person saw them or no one awoke. And it, and it adds why that happened. It's not, isn't that great that happened? It's not attributed to their stealth or secrecy. It, it's not attributed to the weariness of the men who had traveled there. It is attributed to what or who? God. This is what I, we've got to start to really begin to process that there is nothing in which God is not a part of. Uh, there are certain traditions, and, and I've, I've interacted with certain people when things are going on and when they're praying for something or, and when something goes really well, something that, that they were hoping for or desiring for works out and they get what they had hoped for or they wanted. Their response is often this, it was a God thing. This was a God thing. Well, when you didn't get it, where was God? Is not everything ultimately a God thing? I mean, are you going to really give him the glory of power only when it meets your pleasure? Shame, shame, shame. It happens, and I know that that's not what they intend. They don't, they don't come out conversely and say, this was a devil thing. <laughs> Though they might on the bad things, but they won't say in such a way, this is a devil thing. God tried to stop it. Maybe next time. No, the, the, no one goes that far. Praise God, no one goes that far. But practically speaking, by not noting God's absolute profound power and purposes, even over the problems as well as the pleasure. By not noting that, there's a tendency to start to think like that. Good, God did it. Bad, God couldn't stop it this time. But he'll eventually figure out how to stop all those things. He'll eventually, what? Don't, please don't think of God like that. That's not how he is. There's no eventually with regard to his power. He presently could it does and is accomplishing all that he wants his plan unfolds in ways we would have never expected and has parts we would have never desired as david would sometimes even note and experience and that's what we begin to see here from the what i would call the sovereign profound providence all that happens is of the lord the second thing is this sometimes we see sometimes providence is perplexing. More than that, I would say, though all providence, all that ever happens, the only reason I'm saying, calling it providence instead of what happens is because what happens almost has the idea of chance or it just kind of coincidentally, it just kind of happened. No, when you say providence, it's indicating that there is a powerful, purposeful hand over all the happenings, all right? Um, provi though providence is purposeful, the purpose is not always plain. And this is what makes it so difficult because we're, we're looking at these things and they're saying God is in control, God is in control of these, these little details and events, but we can back it up from that. What's even going on in the bigger scheme here? David is still in the process of fleeing for his life. He's no longer living the easy life with his wife and feasting at the table of the king and hanging out with his buddy Jonathan. All of the good times seemingly are gone. He's wandering, wandering around in the domain of goats which is not generally where you would want to live. Again, 
the, the goat's rocks, even the term in Gedi actually means fountain of the goats or fountain of the kids, the young goats. So the, the area he's in right now, it's not an ideal fantasy vacation. It's not where he would want, and, and now it's, it's going on. It's more extended. And, and at this point, I want to even ask you this. What did David do? What did David do to get himself in this situation? He must have some secret sin, doesn't he? Should we figure it out together? Or he must have some serious pride issue that needs to be addressed. Let's figure that out. Oh, probably because he took out Goliath. After that, he probably thought he was big stuff. They were singing a song about him, and he liked it. Is that how it happened? I mean, we can come up with all kinds of different things uh, uh, of why God has allowed these things to happen. And I, I want us to note this in advance. That God has allowed everything to happen that happens is a guarantee. It is all by God's design. Why is a mystery. That is a guarantee. Why is a mystery but we don't like mysteries that remain mysteries if any of you have ever read mystery books or mystery novels or seen mystery movies or whatever the whole thing about them is if you turn to the back of the book which tragically apparently some people do in advance they find out who done it who did it? What's the outcome? The, uh, somehow the mystery is revealed. And when the book is done, the mystery is revealed. We close the book and it's like, okay, it's resolved. What if there was a mystery book written that when it ends, oh my goodness, they never figure out who did it. <laughs> Where's part two? Because eventually there has to be a, 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 a book that brings the resolve to this or I'm going to go nuts, or I don't want to read this book anymore, or somebody stop publishing this author. Because we, we don't like that idea of we don't know. But here's the reality we live in. We don't know. Ecclesiastes tells us this in Ecclesiastes 8, verse 17. In the words of Solomon, who sought with an astounding, almost immeasurable measure of human wisdom that God had given to him to look at what God was doing and to try to, with that remarkable reasoning power, assess what's going on and why God's doing what he's doing. He was often left perplexed. I don't get it. Here's a righteous man. Here's a wicked man. You know what happens to both of them? They die. Here's a rich man and here's a poor man. You know what happens to both of them? They die. Here's one who worked hard and here's one who was lazy. And what happens to both of them? And you know the rest of it, exactly. And so when uh, so Solomon just looked at it and said, I can't entirely make sense of it. I don't get it. And in chapter 8, verse 17, he says this, Then I saw all the work of God and this is his the way he's defining the things that actually happen under the sun all that really happens is the work of God I saw all the work of God he, he assessed all the things that he looked at all the happenings that happen and he said that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun one, we can't find out all the things that God is doing. However much it says he may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though he claims to be wise, or even though he claims to know, he cannot find out. So here comes the guy. I know why God did this. I know why God's doing this in your life. You've got some 
thing that's not gone well. You know, maybe you've met with a loss or an accident or who knows what. Well, I know why that happened to you. It's payback for this that you did to me. No, it's payback for this that you said or there's some secret sin in your life that you're hiding or harboring. But I, I want to just note this for you. This sustained season of difficulty that David is going through is not at any point attributed to any wrong that he was doing. So then we ask, then why? And for some reason, we just keep asking that question. And here's that often the answer. You cannot know. Well, try me. If you just try me, I'll probably get it. Nah, you might not. Even if, he, even if you're told why, you might still say, well, I don't know if that's right. I don't know if that's fair. For example, what if, now when someone starts a sentence with what if, they're speculating, right? I'm not saying this is the case. This is speculation. What if this was happening to David so that Saul would continue to exercise the wicked desire and intent of his heart therefore bringing greater punishment and judgment upon him. Wait a second. So the, the purpose might be to teach the people and to show Saul how wicked he is and to build up his judgment and so that God could teach a lesson or bring to greater judgment Saul. Sweet, sweet David has to suffer misery and discomfort and shame and embarrassment and hardship just so that God can teach a lesson or do something in the life of Saul? That's not fair! Well, is it fair? Who decides what's fair and what's not fair? And also, uh, who decides that God is only doing one thing? We've got a number of things going on here. We've got th there are things in these passages related to the Philistines, things related to the Ziphites, things related to, to Saul, things related to David, things related to Ag Abner and Abishai and Ahimelech and all kinds of other fellows. Do you really think that God has one singular purpose? I mean, that's one of the things that I think is problematic sometimes, for example, in the study of Scripture. People will come to a book and they'll say in advance, this is the book of Philippians. The theme of Philippians is joy. And so now let's study Philippians. And, and so they've decided in advance that the theme is joy, you know, and just for fun, I say, well, search the book and see how many times you see the words joy and rejoicing and compare that to how many times you see the word Christ. And you tell me what, if the theme is based on emphasis and repetition, what the theme really is. Or further, who of us gets to decide that a, a book of scripture necessarily has a single theme or agenda? Who are we to think that we can decide those things in advance? So what, what I'm saying is there is a complication with regard to the purpose and providence of God. I, I, I would say it this way. Providence has a loud voice, but not a clear one. It's loud and it says that God has done this. God has permitted this. God has purposed this. This is within the mysterious unfolding will of God. But why did he put that in his will? We were discussing that this morning as many of us, I mean now for the last six months we have been praying and praying for Gianna Bartolucci. Since Tony and Gianna met with that head-on collision on Christmas Eve when the car burst into flames, uh, we were amazed that God had 
not taken Gianna at that time with the extent of her injuries, the severity of the burns, and we'd been pleading with God, have mercy on her. And in the time between that date and the beginning part of this week, there had been slow but seemingly incremental progress where she was getting a little bit better. You know, and, and, and speaking even this morning uh, uh, with Jemima, had been working through the thoughts uh, even uh, before this week, thinking, okay, when next Christmas rolls around, wonder how much progress Gianna will have made um, from how she was on Christmas Day of last year, how, where she'll be at on Christmas Day of the next year, and, and what will be the progress that would be experienced each year, and just thinking that that's probably how it's going to be, because in our minds, why would God not take her then and allow her to incrementally improve only to take her home this week? such that when there is a seemingly ordinary step of surgery in the process of her recovery that didn't really have any major red flags or serious concern for anyone, they went through the motions and went through the steps, and in the process of practical complications, but the providential purposes of God, Gianna was called home. Only daughter to... to uh, Tony and Lois, only grandkid uh, to their, their, so much love, so much care, so much prayer. We might say, why? Why would God stir up the hearts of so many people to pray for so many months with such pleading and such earnestness and such hope only to take her in that last moment? And what's the answer? God only knows. And we trust him. And why do we trust him? Because he is God. And he is good. And, 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 and partly the struggles that we have is because we're locked into where we live. I'm going to tell you this. Gianna's present experience right now in the presence of the Lord is so much more glorious than these last six months. So much more glorious than these last 15 years that she had life. Wait. They're so much more glorious than every day that she would have ever experienced had she lived to be a hundred. And yet here we're thinking, she's lost. Did God give up on her? Give up. He brought her home. She got a better prize this week than we did. I mean, we, we don't understand that to be with the Lord is far better. Now, to be apart from a loved one is grievous. And the grief cuts very deeply. And the pain is so sure. And we want to continue to pray for Brad and his family mourning the loss of, of, of their, his mother, Fran, and her faithful witness all those years, and also for the Bartolucci's and, and their loss of Gianna. But in the process of that, let's not forget this. It is a glorious thing. We might, we might ask ourselves this, and how come we don't ask ourselves, why her and not me? Why, why did she get to go there where there's going to be no more of the pain, no more struggles, no more giving in to temptation, no more uh, shortness of temper, no more frustration, no more... Uh, why did she get to go and yet here I am, still here, guaranteed to face a problem this week and to be someone else's problem this week? Pretty much a guarantee. For all of us. But, but for some reason, we don't think like that, do we? What I want us to note is this. In all of this, uh, well, go with me. Still with, within this. 
today's providence may not be a punishment. It always has purpose. But today's providence might be a test. For example, David seemed to assess the practical providences he faced on those days as not God showing him what he should do, but showing him an opportunity, showing him what he could do, and then letting him show what he will do. For example, here he is, helpless, alone. On another occasion, you know, compromised position, sleeping and unconscious. The assessment of his men in both situations was, God has given him into your hand so that you will kill him. It's the will of God for you to kill him. I mean, God wouldn't have put that before you. He wouldn't have put him there if it wasn't God's will for you to kill him. You know, that's kind of like someone may be saying, I went into a jewelry store. I was looking at this piece of jewelry. They took it out of the case. They handed it to me. And then the guy got a phone call. And he just left. He just said, I'll be right back. And he left with the ring in my hand. Obviously, I was supposed to just walk out of the store with it because, I mean, that kind of circumstance, he put it in my hand, he walked away. It was like, at that point, who did it really belong to? Well, no, that's not how it works. That, what do you do with that? I mean, in that situation, you know what to do, right? You stay there and you wait, or you put it down on the counter and, and you leave, and the next person comes up, finds it on the counter, Thank you, Lord. <laughs> and takes it and walks away. Well, no. Well, because the opportunity to steal so easily presented itself, does that mean it was God's will for you to steal? See, that's an easy one. Because the opportunity presented itself for him to kill Saul. Does that mean it was right to kill? I mean, first of all, He's a king. More than that, he's not presently in the midst of war. Does he have a right to just go and kill another man? Well, according to the law, he shouldn't. Now, someone might say that's sort of self-defense. It's sort of somewhat justified. And we, we probably could side with him on that. But he looked at that situation. He says, look, he's the king. God has put him as the king. God has said that I will be king. I'm going to let God work out all the details. How that happens. I'm not taking this man into my hands. The opportunities presented itself, but I'm not, I'm not going to listen and let providence tell me what to do. I'm going to listen to God's clear prescriptions as to what I should do. And this much I know. I shouldn't kill. I shouldn't steal. I shouldn't do these things. And so he knew it was not right. To act on those practical desires. Now listen. By not doing it. By not killing. What did he end up doing? Some, some would say he ended up stepping on his own foot or shooting himself in the foot, or whatever, he ended up having a lot of problems that would only get worse. Listen, months from now, what could he have potentially done? If I, oh, if I just would have, at that point, finished, it would have been done. Even years later, when all is said and done, and eventually Saul and Jonathan and so many others are killed, he may be able to sit there and look back and say, you know what, if I'd have back then just killed him, my buddy Jonathan would have been my right-hand man when I was on the throne, not just 
only Mephibosheth uh, there. Uh, these things, oh, I could have made things so much better for myself if I had done this differently. Hopefully you were listening closely to the words that I said. I could have made things so much better for myself. Therein, my brothers and sisters, lies the problem. We all try to interpret providence as if it is giving us messages as to how God would lead us to the most pleasure or the easiest path. Because surely the most pleasure and the easiest path must be the will of God. Right? I mean, when we consider his own son, his entire earthly life was nothing but love and acceptance and pleasure and appreciation and comfort until the days of his gentle passing. Right? Or was he accused of being a false teacher, accused of serving demons, accused of seeking a name for himself, mistreated, misrepresented, mocked, maligned, abused, and violently murdered. Yeah. If Christ so suffered in the flesh, we're told in, in 1 Peter, arm yourselves with the same intention. Note what God's purposes are. Now, I don't know what they are for you, and I don't know what they are for me. It's not wicked for us to say, God, make today an easy day. <laughs> make today a good, simple day. But when he doesn't, what do we do? Don't rush to say, I must be full of secret sins. Don't rush to say, what are all the rules? What, what is the specific wrong thing that I did that is causing this to come on my head? Now, I urge a healthy measure of self-evaluation and repentance is always good. I urge you to do that when you're in the plain and pleasant path, when all is good. Because please don't ever say to yourself, contrary-wise, all is good. I've had a great week. Must be that I've been pretty sinless this week. My thoughts, man, the purity, I can't even, it's, it's just amazing to be me this week. Do, do we do that? I hope not. But, the, 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 but we do the other way around, and we, I want us to be very, very careful about that. Now, uh, I guess a last thought, I want to draw your attention to the perspective of David, and here's why David was was willing and able to not maybe have all the answers to the reasons why specifically and that's really let me draw your attention briefly if you can to chapter uh, 24 verse 14 he's speaking to Saul from a distance and he says these words to Saul he says after whom has the king of Israel come out come out after whom are you whom do you pursue He's speaking of himself as the one under pursuit, and now here is how he describes himself. I highly doubt any of you would immediately describe yourselves with these terms. I, you've come out after what? A dead dog. Now I'm just going to start out with this. If he said you'd come out after a dog, that'd be pretty bad as well. Right? I mean, a dog is not generally noted as, as an animal of honor. We, we usually throw in the appellate, a, a filthy dog. Right? It, it, it doesn't come across as, as clean and noble and wonderful. Uh, uh, you know, if you look at somebody and you say, you're a dog. You know, that's generally not going to be appreciated, you know, or met with embraces and gifts right you're a dog now david doesn't only go there he says 
I'm a dead dog. Now, as filthy and unclean and generally undesirable as dog. Now, remember, most dogs at that time were not necessarily the fluffy, clean, bathed, primped poodle in a house that's being well taken care of. They're, they're stray dogs, you know. They're, they're the dogs that are just all over the place, digging in the, digging in the dirt and eating trash, Come with me to India sometime and I'll show you a multitude of what looks like cloned, diseased dogs everywhere. Ugh. He says, a dead dog. What does a dead dog do? I mean, a living dog, you can, at least it eats the trash, you know. You can throw, throw the leftover food and stuff out and the dog will eat it up. Maybe put the plate down, the dog will clean up the plate for you. At least dogs can have those practical things of some positive benefit while they're alive. How useful is a dead dog? Just, just noting that. It is not in David's mind. I am very important. I am very useful. I am very necessary. When you, when you have this idea, I am a dead dog, what are you saying? I am not necessary. I am highly expendable. And there are always others better than me for the position that I'm in. See, self-esteem, the idea that's taught in the, in the world today, unhealthy. Because it, what... The, they say that it leads people to suffer from an inferiority complex. But most people suffer from a superiority complex. They think they're better than they are. They think they deserve better than they're getting, generally speaking. Now, our, our sense of, of value comes not with the inherent value of my talents, my skills, my abilities, my looks, my blah, blah, blah. It's the fact that I am his and he is mine. I belong to him. He has set his heart upon me. He's treasured me in spite of the fact that I'm a dead dog. He loves me. In spite of the fact that, as the scriptures say, you worm Jacob. Here, he, he, his next one beyond a dead dog is to equate himself with a flea. A flea, with regard to size, you might note, is somewhat insignificant. Though insignificant, it still exists. And its activity among others that exist, would we say, is pleasant? Beneficial? Entertaining? No, I think the notions of a flea circus are just imaginary. They don't actually exist. A flea, it bites you, it itches, it's annoying, it's a pain, and, and it hops from one place to another. David's like, I'm hard to catch. I'm all over the place. You're not going to get a hold of me. You're wasting your time. And when you do, what have you done? You killed a flea. And rarely do fleas live alone. So there's another flea after that and another flea after that. You're not getting anything good. These, the, this is the sense. And so David doesn't have to worry about, oh God, why is this happening to me? I don't understand this. Please fix this. He, David's like, I don't deserve any good. I don't deserve any comfort. I don't deserve any pleasure. I don't deserve any protection. I will do my best at all times and at all times trust in what God does, and in what he brings. Instead of asking ourselves all the time, why is God doing this? We ought to rather be asking the question, what would God have me do? Not why is God doing this, but what would he have me do? And we can also ask another question. What is he sure to do? And so I close by reading 1 Samuel chapter 26, verse 23 and 24. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. 
do what he's called me to do because in the due time, I will stand before him. I will receive my reward. So I don't have to worry about what happens now in the short term. I wait upon him. I'm playing the long game. <laughs> he rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. Let's pray. Lord, as we've um, covered a number of things and a number of thoughts this morning, um, we do stand here in, in a time of some challenge and some difficulty as our hearts grieve with uh, and for the Bartolucci family. But your word makes it clear over and over again uh, that you're in control. Everything is in your hands. And we trust in that. We also know, God, that your purposes are mysterious. The way, the whys and the details and all of the different layers and purposes that you are working, we could not understand, we could not fully know. But Lord, we can know you. We can know your truth. We can know your goodness. We can know your eternal purposes. We can know your son and your salvation. We can know your peace in the midst of trials. Lord, help us to just have that mindset that this world is not about us. We are not, don't exist for ourselves, but for you. Lord, let us ever live to please our Father who is in heaven. Lord, we thank you for the mercies that you show us every day. Lord, we thank you for the kindness that you've displayed to us in so many ways. We ask for greater grace in the scope of eternity to understand the practical challenges of the things that we face, but to face them with faith and surety because you are great and you are powerful. And though we may not understand your ways, we can know and love and follow you and trust that when we stand before you, you will make it all plain. And we will know even as we are fully known. But until that time, we will look to you and we will walk in obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.